Facebook Child Protection Week webinar series. Today's webinar, every child and young person deserves to learn what respectful relationships look like for them. How do we make this happen? I'm Lisa Waters, I am the Deputy CEO at NAPCAN, but I'd like to start by acknowledging and paying my respects to the traditional custodians of the beautiful land where I am today. I'm on Anawan country, but I'd also like to acknowledge the fellow nations of the Gumbangi, the Kamilaroon and Rangari and pay my respects to their elders past, present and future. I'd like to acknowledge the elders past, present and future from any of the lands that you might be watching from today and welcome all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are logged on. It'd be nice to see in the chat function which lands other people are logging on from today. So if you'd like to share that, I'd be interested to see. It's also really important to acknowledge children um, this week and all weeks because Children in communities is where culture will live on. NatCan is very fortunate to work across this beautiful nation. And as part of that, we're always very mindful of the devastating impacts of colonisation on the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and communities. So now a little bit of housekeeping. If you're not um, familiar with GoToWebinars, you've had a very different last two years to me. The control panel is on the right-hand side of the screen. If you have any technical issues, please ring or email one of our staff members. Their contact details will be in the chat, chat function. Um, you're in listen only mode. You can't turn your microphone or your cameras on. So just sit back and listen. And um, there will be, there's a, a function down the bottom that says question function that's enabled. We'd love um, you to send through some questions for the panelists today. There's currently, um, increasing as I'm looking at it, but nearly um, 350 people online. So if you can send those um, questions through, that'd be great. The webinar is going to be recorded and we'll post it on our website and we'll also send out the links and handouts in an email to you. Just um, some of the topics that we're going to talk about and the content that we'll cover in today's session may be a bit sensitive or difficult or upsetting. So please look out for yourself and remember it's okay to switch off or step away from the webinar if you need to. Nobody will know um, if you've stepped away and it's important to look after yourself while participating in these discussions. Um, we'll also post some contact details of um, services and helplines that are available for the support in the question box. Um, I'm just having a look. There's people from New South Wales. There's people from um, Queensland, the Northern Territory. Um, thank you for sharing that. Um, this year's National Child Protection Week theme states that every child in every community needs a fair go. The theme speaks for itself. Um, if you want to find out more about the theme though, you can have a look at the link in the chat box. This year, the conversations we have are in the shade of this ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. The impacts of this will be seen for years to come. So today we just need to acknowledge that there, if there, that there is a much greater need for us to come together as a community and support children and young people and their families in any way that we can. We need to band together and emerge from these challenges in a way that allows us to centre the wellbeing and safety of our children and young people more than we ever have before. Um, we've all become so good at pivoting because of COVID. In our original plan for this webinar, we were hoping to have a live session so that we could hear children and young people's voices on this topic. So often in this space, we talk to children and young people about what adults think they want us to talk about. But sometimes there's a bit of a disconnect between what kids want to talk about and what adults want to talk about. 
Um, hopefully we can pick those, um, we can make this happen next year and pick up on the importance of kids' voices in conversations involving them. So for now, I'd like to introduce Tasha Lawton. She's the manager and founder of Talk Revolution. Tasha was really welcoming when we reached out to her and also quite relieved that someone wanted to collaborate in this space. So welcome, Tasha. Um, Thank you, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Um, look, Tasha, if you could just give us a little bit of um, an overview about what Talk Revolution is and how and why it came about. Sure. Well, Talk Revolution basically exists because I felt that there was a gap when it came to bringing in the voices of young people around anything to do with what we seem to be referring to constantly as respectful relationships, but obviously that includes a whole gamut of things, power, gender, race, um, respect, and I have two teenagers. I grew up in a pretty dysfunctional uh, home myself. There was a lot of addiction. There was a lot of um, oh, abuse, all sorts of wonderful things that have been, you know, the, the very things that have put me on the track of doing what I'm doing now. But it really dawned on me that I also didn't have anybody have any open and real conversations with me about what was going on. Um, I don't think we have enough uh, respect for young people to to appreciate the fact that you know they're not stupid talk to them they're using words and phrases and all sorts of wonderful things that we probably don't know about or wish to believe is going on um, and the transparency and the normalization of conversations is something that I believe and through my experience with working with kids is what they're all craving um, I think there's a massive misconception of youth culture and what we think they want to hear, which is what you already um, touched on, Lisa. And as much as we keep changing and um, bringing in new know, curriculums or we're still, I believe, not actually bringing in the voices of the young people enough to hear what it is that they want to, um, to, to talk about. So that's one of the things that you've been quite successful in doing, though. Um, was it complicated? You have included the voices of children and young people in the development of some of your resources. It's only as complicated as you want to make it. Like you want to talk, they want to talk about sex. They want to talk about pleasure. They want to talk about, you know, what does it mean if I'm a 15-year-old girl and and I have a sexual relationship with an 18 year old girl and then we're drunk but one of them the 18 year old then calls rape on the 15 year old like that's the kind of conversation they want to have okay well let's have that conversation that's the the stuff that's going on let's talk about what that actually means and can I take you back a step Tasha and say how do you know that's the conversation that they want to have because when I sit around with a group of kids, my hmm. teenage, my teenagers and their friends, that's what they're talking about. Like, yeah, so I, I think that's what I'm trying to say. It's not overly complicated. Young people actually do want to talk about this if we give them a platform to have those discussions. Is that your experience? 
hundred percent. If we don't make it weird, then it's not weird for them. If we make it all <gasps> stigma, all can't talk about this, all shouldn't talk about that, then they're going, well, all right, I'm going to go and find someone who will talk to me about it. Um, and then, you know, you don't always get, you don't always have people who are switched on about this stuff and they are going to go to their peers and they will have the conversations. And as a parent, you are just as qualified, if not more qualified than someone who's gone to university and studied all sorts of like you're qualified because it's a conversation with your child. So have that conversation and start them early. So can you tell us a little bit about the resources that you developed? So they're aimed at kids in years five through to 10. They cover eight different topics, alcohol, drugs, eating disorders, gender-based violence, periods, sex, sexuality and suicide and self-harm. Um, they are video-based. They have kids in the videos delivering the content and they're supported by lesson plans and activities. This is for the schools that have been written by HP teachers, PDHP teachers. And then there's a parent version as well. So because the other part is, you know, who's actually responsible for these conversations? Uh, so it's who, a community. Yeah, it's like not one or the other. Yeah, so you're saying it's, sorry to cut you off there, you're saying it's a community responsibility. But one of the things that we hear, and I know we've talked about it, is that parents often find it hard to have these conversations. So have, can you give us any um, of your insight around this and any, um, just talk about the resources that you've developed for parents? Parents are nervous, you know, right. There is no one to blame in why this isn't going the way that it could or should be going. Like there's lots of reasons, there's lots of, you know, you can throw patriarchy in there, you can start blaming, I don't know, years of oppression or whatever. The point, like that's totally irrelevant because in actual fact, it's all about educating yourself on the things that the kids want to talk about. And once, you can't blame people for not having conversations if they haven't been educated on the conversations, right? So kids are there to have them and they're open and they're willing, but if the adults don't feel comfortable and the adults haven't had the support they've needed or they've been, you know, role modeled or modeled something else that they've learnt, then they've got to unpack their shame, stigma, trauma, whatever, in order to feel okay with talking to their kids about it. So I guess with the um, the rules resources with Talk Revolution, it's just to genuinely give parents and carers and anybody else who's got some sort of responsibility for kids the confidence to be able to have the conversation. Because once you actually start to have them and you know that the la you know the right language to use, um, you know what happens if somebody. I don't know, report something that you don't feel comfortable with and who to then talk to about that. Once you have all the tools, then it makes the conversations a lot easier, I think, as well. So I know that you run a number of workshops for parents to have some of those conversations. Can you give us some of like um, 
some of the inside knowledge of the things that you might discuss because I, I'm sure that there's a lot of people online that go, so how do we start those conversations? Um, because often parents and workers, community, teachers, we're, we're reluctant to have conversations uh, with young people around sex. Yeah, I think, again, that you start by having to look at yourself and why you're feeling that, like where does that come from? Um, understanding that by having a conversation, and I don't want to step into Sammy's territory too much here, so the, you know, the, the having the conversation early um, and often, and I feel like it, there's a lot in there that's common sense, sense I think there's a lot in there that's um you you like you're the person to know your child that's the other bit it's like you're the parent you actually know them better than anyone else like you'll know if it's the right time you'll know if it's not the right time you'll know whether or not to push a conversation or um the best when you're talking to your kid about stuff it's never making it about them as well it's always a broader broader context um a story is always a brilliant way to have a conversation or asking questions getting curious kids have spent a lot of time being told to listen um and that needs to flip in order to actually understand more about them and what it is that they are experiencing and need to hear so listening better um asking more questions a lot about feeling as well like you know how do things make you feel when you hear stuff see stuff um i mean it's just oh, i don't mean to i don't mean to belittle it because i get that it is hard for people but i just think if you like back yourself i'm not like i'm not any different to anybody else i'm a mum that's got two kids yes i am comfortable about talking about a lot of topics but I, if i can talk to people how long did it take to develop this like from the from the time that you had this idea that you needed to create some resources how long did it take what was the process involved in that well it was a long process because I didn't want to I wanted to make sure it was right I wanted to make sure that it had parent input it had teacher input it had child input um expert input all the inputs so it's taken probably about, took about three years in total to put it all together. Um, I obviously wanted to make sure it was relevant. And that's another thing, things are changing so quickly too. So staying on top of the relevance of stuff is always pretty tricky. Um, so yeah, it took a while. Um, was that the question? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to sort of know what I, so there's lots of people involved in, you've got a lot of experts involved in it. You've had the voices of young, people involved in it. And I know that you were doing a consultation with you, um, QUT, was that last week? Yeah, yeah, that, I mean, that was brilliant. Again, it's that, um, you know, and I've said this to you, Lisa, when I first met you too, like, there's lots of people out there trying to do this work out there on their own. And it, by people coming together, what we're just trying to actually find the best way for kids to be supported to be able to grow up as well-balanced humans that can make empowered and positive choices for themselves so there's lots of people out there with great ideas and collaborating in order to bring 
these great ideas together to me seems like a no-brainer so when I had the opportunity to talk to the students at QUT I was literally like I mean yeah my videos that's part of it and some of the ideas they came back with because they then they tap into themselves when they're at school which obviously wasn't that far or that long ago you know and they're like oh yeah if we had you know like a separate area outside school where we could um uh, you know go and make stuff while we're talking about stuff or like breakout rooms for um peers to talk about stuff but you know that when you go into that space that that's what it's about and there's um uh and then like an actual which is something that i have been thinking about doing as a website that's or app that is specifically for kids anonymously talking to kids asking questions um whatever question you want to ask and it's answered by another kid um and i mean they just kept they just kept uh, gamification um just all different ways that they believe that that would work to engage the kids um because yeah you know otherwise we're still at that thing where it's the crusty old person at the front of the um classroom trying to do the best that they're or at home do you know what i mean like we're, it's just generationally so there's um there's a lot of discussion about respectful relationship education at the moment it's it's very topical but we also know and you've just alluded to it that peer peer on peer learning is one of the best platforms that we have for young people and to be able to guide them in in that way is that what you were alluding to that that's something that we should be um, looking at or facilitating? Yeah, 100%. I mean, all the research shows that that's where the best learning comes from. I know people be like, yeah, but how do you know that they're saying the right thing? And I get that as well. So that, you know, there obviously needs to be some supervision around what the, um, what conversations are being had, but ultimately, you know, you empower these kids and you, fill them full of so much resilience and um, self-confidence and self-awareness and being able to understand cues and see things that come up in their mates and so much more focus on their emotional intelligence and emotional well-being. And then you can start, they'll start to trust each other, call each other out, you know, like it's, it's building their resilience to be able to have these conversations. Because they're having the conversations, aren't they? Yeah. I've got um, an interesting um, question from the audience here, and it says it seems that we're still at a point of how do we have these conversations, wondering um, why and needing to work on ourselves as adults to be able to be open to these conversations. And the... Um, they're saying we're interested in why do you think adults are so behind in this space? You got a view on that? I just think it's intergenerational, systemic, you know, like there's an, I like for me, the time that we're in right now, I don't know of any other time where you've got mind people with the mindset of the 1950s, 1960s, and then young people that are, you know, coming through with the Cis, cisgender and the, all the other intersexual stuff, right? That we are all alive right now at a time in history where every single person, almost all the different generations have got all of their um, 
thoughts and biases and and like we're all kind of fighting for whose is right which one's right which one's wrong and you know like well I was watching a documentary the other day about transgender and they're talking about well you know I've been completely um scarred by the fact that in the 1960s transgenders were depicted like x y and z it's like well mm. Do you think that back then they had the knowledge that they have now? No, they didn't. So no one, everybody's doing the best they can at the time with what they've got, but we got to just keep moving with it because it's speeding up and that's what's happening now. Like it's changing so quickly and we haven't caught up yet. We haven't had the education. We've been, you know, modeled it incorrectly or not even incorrectly, just whatever it was at, our, at that time. So I don't think anybody's, wrong I just think it's different and it's changing and we need to just know that and catch up and wake up and start to you know give the listen to the kids and understand what it is that they want so we can give them what they need so if you were talking to um your contemporaries your friends like how would you start do you promote having these conversations with other parents like what what can we do to start shifting our knowledge base um do I yeah they know that I do um they send their kids you know if they feel like they can't have the conversations and they'll be like go and talk to go and talk to Tash go and hang out with her or and I think that's another part actually building again it's that community thing knowing that there are people that if you're not comfortable who do you trust who else can pick up the conversation and I do understand like for some people the parents aren't necessarily the ones that the kids wants to talk want to talk to either but is there a aunt an uncle uh I don't know somebody else there's got to be role models and they and they need to be connected to people that they can feel safe to talk to because um that's where the problem arises. Okay. Um, um, there's a lot of questions coming through, but um, maybe we didn't make it clear. One of the questions is, how did Tasha ensure the program was supported by young people? Did you do focus groups or how young people, were they involved in the development? Maybe you could just explain that in more detail. Yes, so um, I put a call out to young people and said that this is what I was doing and they were, um, involved with the writing of the the scripts if you like so the language that we use to actually uh, deliver the content and um, yeah and how it was put together and the topics the topics within see because it's been written in line with the curriculum there's the topics that are covered in the curriculum are within it like there are there's a zillion other topics that you could be and conversations you could be having um, and talk revolution will cons will continue to evolve but as a starting point it was like yeah okay so you know periods for example I used this example earlier you know each teacher within a school will decide first of all whoever's responsible for delivering that and then how they choose to deliver that so one teacher might go okay I'm going to talk about the menstrual cycle I'm going to show one video off YouTube and it talks about the actual cycle tick another teacher might go okay I believe that 
boys need to understand about this. There's a um, cultural issue around this. There's an emotional intelligence that can be tapped into around this. And then there's traditions and cultures. So, you know, like it's so dependent on the individual as well and what they're comfortable with and willing to, where they're willing to go with it. You're right. Well, um, there's still lots of questions coming in, but I am going to try to keep to time on this and I'm going to introduce and we're going to come back to Tasha. So keep those questions coming. And some of the um, some of the questions that I see coming in are going to be relevant to the next speakers. So thank you so much, Tasha. And I'd now like to introduce Holly O'Sullivan. Um, Williams, the Deputy Principal at St Aidan's Anglican School for Girls in Brisbane. And Holly was inspired to change school culture and talk to young people about respectful relationships, including consent. So, um, hi Holly, um, welcome. Hi Lisa. Now, look Holly, you've worked at a number of schools and in different roles in education. What are you hearing from young people about what they want in terms of RRE? Yeah, it's an interesting um, space with when we're talking about respectful uh, relationships. I think that students are now, they've been really buoyant by um, having people like Grace Tame and Chanel Contour who've, who've fought for the conversation and they're saying, okay, I'm going to speak up now. So I think that the conversation, what I'm hearing from young people is a lot of girls feel like consent they understand what consent education is and this is I can only talk from this school experience and also from um, my 16 year old son and his peers as well but it seems to be consent okay they seem to understand most parts of it but what they want to know more about is the law and they want to know about if something happens so I, I've put in all of these measures in place and I've said no to this and no to that and I've actually put um, you know barriers in place as well and blocked people or whatever it may be I've done all these things, but I've still been on the receiving end of something that has been, um, whether it's assault or whether it is behaviour online, um, whichever it may be, what do I do now? Because they believe they're listening to these stories about if I take it to the law, nothing's going to happen. So they just want to know more about the law. And they also want those respectful relationships to include things like um, those engaging of relationships, how does that work? So they're even talking about things like pleasure. They want to know, hang on, there's a bigger picture here and what does that look like? So um, and one of the questions from the audience for Tasha, but I think this flows into something that I think you're quite um, well placed to answer is, do you find you have much resistance from schools or parents, especially from a faith-based school where you work, having some of these conversations and how do you make the two align and how do you get around having some of those conversations or getting them in to the curriculum? Yeah, I think uh, having, look, our principal is amazing. Um, she has worked in all boys schools and all girls school now. And so she is very open to having student voice. It's a big part of our school. So in that, in that place, we find ourselves that we want to be proactive in terms of respectful relationships with our students. But we understand too that we have to be reactive in terms of what we do in our cell program. So that's our social emotional learning program. And so we have put in, we have had, yeah, I would say there's a handful of parents 
that are not always receptive to the things that we want to do. So for example, in consent education, um, I'm all about communication. We have a saying here that comes also from um, my principal is um, tell them before you tell them. And so we make sure that every, we're very open about what our programs are, whether we communicate that through, you know, parent information nights at the beginning of the year, year level pages, emails out from year level coordinators. So that way we're saying, these are the things that we're gonna look at. There are a handful though, every time that may say, no, I don't want my child to be a participant in that. And there are several reasons. One, it could be maybe the child has actually suffered something traumatic and it's it's gonna to be too much for them. Um, or it could be that they believe it needs to be at home or they believe that school is not the place. And as a religious school, we should be avoiding a topic such as, you know, sex. So, do you find that there's a benefit, though, in educating the young people because they will inadvertently speak to each other? Is, yes. are you, you see that or can you comment on that? Yeah, so look, it's a, it's, it's a tricky pace, uh, space, I should say. Um, as a student protection officer at the school as well, I am aware too of things like mandatory reporting and the information that comes through. And at the moment, we um, recently had a group of students who put out a survey to um, students and it was about consent education. And what came from that was some stories that students shared. And these students who did the survey were like, oh, what do we do with this information? So I think there is a place for peers. We have a buddy program um, where year 12s and year 8s and year 11s and year 7s, and there's lots of different things that they talk about as part of the buddy program. It's not just a how are you doing? It's also, you know, can I show you how to use the privacy settings on your phone when we're doing sexting, et cetera. So there, there is this beautiful uh, relationship between students and I can see the, the notion of peer-to-peer -peer is great because they're sharing stories. And what we need to then do on the back of that is say to those students who may hear something from someone else, which is really, it, it could be about a situation that is dangerous or someone has been in a situation where they feel like they have been threatened or they've been assaulted, what do they do there? And that's probably the conversation that we're having with students now because students would prefer to speak to students, absolutely. But when they get something that they don't know what to do with, what do they do then? And that's where um, there's a lot of our time is on that at the moment. It's okay, who are people you can talk to? You may not want to talk to someone at school. Who else you can, so we want to give them a handful, like so many resources, because that's the conversations they're having. We don't want to stop the conversations. I think it's wonderful that this group of students at our school started that conversation because it's been great. It's created lots of change, lots of conversations with staff as well, who may go, I can't, I, I'm, I, I can't talk about this, can I have some help? Um, or, hey, I've actually really want to talk about this with, with students, how can I be a part of this? So what I'm hearing is that it's, um, it's not just conversations that need to happen in the school context, so the school can't necessarily be solely responsible for having these. So how do you broaden that out? Like how do you take that out to your broader school community? to support having those ongoing conversations. Any ideas? Yes, yeah, so it's that's I would say that is a work in progress um, for us in terms of getting our whole 
community on board with the changes that we're making to the CELL program. Um, we make changes all the time to it to make sure that we are catering for our student needs. And I know that that can be, and um, before when I was talking previously with Tasha and yourself, that we were saying that every school is doing some different things and whether that's a good thing or not, or whether we need to have um, some more stringent uh, curriculum guidelines to assist us in that space. But um, it's about, as I said, communication. And the other thing we did is we just had in um, Zoe Rathis who just came in, she's a senior lecturer at Griffith and her, um, she has done so much in family law and um, violence against women and children. And so having her in as part of the conversation, so we're getting her to come in and speak to students and say, okay, this is what you need to know about the law. This is what you need to know about who you can talk to. Yes, she did say, and they, the students asked this too, of, but what's the point if nothing's going to happen? And so they talk about um, other situations that they've heard about. And she said, well, the point is, if we don't keep pushing and saying and letting our voice be heard, then we're not going to be able to make enough institutional and legislation change. And I mean, yeah, you've got a lawyer in to speak to the young people, which is really necessary because the law is really complicated around these. There's lots of different laws in states and territories, um, federal laws. It, it is really tricky, which is one of the positions that we say, well, surely prevention and having these early intervention prevention initiatives has to be the way to move forward. Um, I've just got a question here for you. I'm not sure how diverse your um, cohort of young people um, is at St Aidan's, but um, they'd like to ask you if you work with many multicultural young people and if there's different barriers that you see and if your approaches are different. Yes, it's a, um, so we're a K to 12 school and we have many different cultures at the school. And yeah, there has been, um, oh, look, not as much as I would actually have thought when I first started um, at St Aidan's, uh, I think more the kickback we have is from families who perhaps don't understand what we mean by respect for relationships and consent education. And I think that's probably more. So when we've had people in and they've been talking about um, what consent looks like and maybe looking at words like rape culture of their confusing consent and rape culture and um, with maybe that we're going to be man haters at St Aidan's because we're all women, which we're not. We've got lots of men who, who work at the school too. But so it hasn't been so much a cultural um, issue at all. And we haven't had students in my time at there, so four years, I haven't had students being removed because of that. Okay, thank you. Um for sharing now, Holly. I've also people going, can I have Holly's contact details? Um, so <laughs> we'll, we'll happy to help. I get it. It's so, it's such a, um, oh, I mean, I'm really excited by the fact that we have students who want to talk more and more and ask questions. And um, when there are students asking questions, they're not only looking for answers, but they're looking for support and that's a beautiful thing that they are then trusting adults to say, hang on, we've learned all this or I've seen all this. Hey, what do we do now? And I'm excited by that because I think there comes a time and I think last year with 
I know that Queensland, Brisbane, we're very lucky. We haven't had many lockdowns. And so online learning though last year, it was that little bit hard of, of connecting with students in, in, in that space and making sure that um, we were still covering this content because sometimes the screen can really put that bar barrier in. But yeah, I, I, I'm grateful for all of our beautiful young leaders like Brittany Higgins and uh, I mean, there's so many who have spoken up that are now our students looking at and going, huh, actually, there's something I want to say. Yeah, they really um, created a platform in Australia at the moment where this conversation yeah. is, is, is right to be had, hasn't it? Um, yeah, yeah, and so I think that we need to embrace the young people when they're saying, hey, we want to talk about this. But I, one of the reasons you're invited to the webinar is because you're obviously one of those teachers and those leaders who are having those conversations. But it's my experience that um, the level of conversations, and Tasha alluded to it before, is sort of, it's a bit subjective. It's up to the luck of the school or the passionate teacher or the individual who leads this in the school system. Have you got any ideas about how we could be more uniform across schools, like public, private, um, and how we could, you know, all come into line so that it's not just about the passion of an individual teacher? Mm. I think mm. on that. <laughs> you run for minister. You can run for a, <laughs> a policy yeah. change position. I, I think that... I've got two thoughts on it because I do think that schools have, you know, different students. My husband's in education as well in a really similar position, very different school, co-ed school and um, a larger school and, yeah, and different. And I think that, I mean, we have conversations like this quite a bit at home working out, oh, what are you doing? What are you? And I'm like, oh, no, that's not going to work. And he's like, oh, what are you doing? No, no way. And I think that there are some times when you have to choose things that cater for your students and those needs. However, what we need to have is a willingness for schools to want to talk about the topics that we don't want to talk about maybe, but the students do want to talk about. So whether it is things like, um, I mean, at the moment, I think students are pretty clued in on the reproductive system and how it all works. They get that. They do it in science, they do it in biology. Okay, that's covered. But what some schools, and I understand why, are shying away from those conversations. And to be honest, should they all be having those conversations? That's where we need to bring the parents in. So I think if there's going to be a curriculum change in regards to having some consistency, it needs to be that there are some set topics that we do need to cover at school. And there are some set topics that we need to invite parents into that conversation and say, guess what? This is what your child wants to know about. They want to hear about it from you and they want to hear about it from us. Let's open it up. And do you think it should be the responsibility of teachers to have all of those conversations or do you think it should be outside experts who might work in mental health or sexual health? Like, yeah. What's your thoughts? Um, I think a combination of, I mean, I've been reading some research on it and it can kind of go either way. It's like, um, I feel like there's a split with uh, with what people are deciding in there. So it's on one token, it's like bring in an outside provider because that's their specialty. That's what they're working on all the time. But then on the mm -hmm. other side, it's like, but, you know, if you've got the teachers and they've already built this this trust with the students, 
then that's going to be great. So I, I think it needs to be a combination of both. So for example, having, um, you know, Zoe come in and speak to, to the year 11s in this case, and she's coming back again to speak to the year 10s. With her, it's, she might have that initial conversation. She is the person who has that knowledge about the law, absolutely bring her in. But the conversation can't stop there. It's got to keep going. There needs to be time for questions and reflection and, and working out what those next steps are. And that's the same with um, any person who has a specialty in, in this, like what Tasha was saying, like having someone like Tasha a part of that conversation because that's her specialty. Hmm. Yeah, and I think that we need to have lots of tools in our toolkit, basically, to be responsive to the needs of what the young people are actually asking us and what they need. And some teachers might have a really easy fit, some mightn't, but yeah. And I guess there needs to be that flexibility. I um I can't believe that that went so quickly. And yeah, now <laughs> I need to move on to the next speaker, but keep the questions coming through because we're going to move and we'll hear a bit more from Holly at the end, but we're going to, I'm going to introduce the next speaker, but thank you, Holly, for your insights. Thanks, Lisa. Um, so I'd now like to introduce Sammy Bruderer. She's our Queensland Manager and National Manager of Child Safe Organisations at NAPCAN. Sammy's a passionate advocate for prevention and an incredibly flexible practitioner that explores and implements strategies and programs to ensure that the voices of children are heard in this space. Welcome, Sammy. Thanks, Lisa. And hi, everyone. It's really great to see so many people joining in this important conversation. And um, thanks again, Lisa, for your acknowledgement earlier. And I just wanted to let everyone know that I'm lucky enough to be joining you from beautiful Kwandamuka country today. Okay. Well, thanks and welcome, Sammy. Um, look, Sammy, um, we've heard a lot about the need for adults to talk to children and young people. Um, when should we be introducing ideas about consent to children? Um, to put it really simply, it's the earlier the better, but it's never too late to start the conversation. Um, so consent is a concept everyone needs to understand because it applies to situations that occur every day to everyone. So often we think about consent in terms of engaging in sexual activity or intimacy. However, consent is really about an agreement between people that they want to do something and they completely understand what they're agreeing to. So um, it, it's absolutely applies to sexual activity, but there is also consent in general and in everyday settings. And if we think about everyday interactions, such as agreeing to borrow something, letting your doctor examine you, taking photos or hugging, picking up kids, uh, we're constantly giving and receiving consent all the time to the point that we don't always think about it. Um, so it's important that children have the opportunity to practice and learn from a very young age, the communication skills on how to ask for consent. But it's also about how to hear and respect the answer, whatever that's going to be. So in starting these conversations early and providing opportunities for children to practice these skills, we're helping them build confidence and capacity and understanding regarding consent and respect for relationships and communication. And through normalising expectations about consent in everyday interactions, we're helping to build those foundations for children to navigate consent and relationships in different settings and, and stages of their development. So can you just tell me, like, what does that look like? So, you know, we often hear, what what could we be saying to parents like if um can because we sort of how do we normalize consent just in you know some day-to-day -day tips about how we might normalize that 
I think picking up from what Tasha was talking about earlier, um, conversations are important. Um, something that all adults can do is to create opportunities that help kids learn about general consent or experience what it's like to give and receive consent. Um, there are different tools to help create opportunities such as there's reading books together uh, that have consent messaging or if you work or volunteer with kids you could run programs or do activities that help kids learn about and express what helps them feel and be safe. But I think one of the most effective things that all adults can do, no matter what their relationship or engagement with children, is to role model what giving and receiving general consent looks like and what respectful communication and, and relationships look like. And this could be in interactions with children or interactions with other adults, especially whilst kids are present. So I think essentially we want to help children learn how to give consent by helping them figure out what they are and aren't okay with and being confident enough to communicate it clearly as, as well as them understanding it's okay to say yes or no or change their mind at any time. Um, and we also wanna help children to understand how to treat people respectfully by asking for consent and listening and, and respecting what their so answers I'm, are. I'm just gonna throw you a bit of a curveball. So, so the, Santa, the Santa Claus, um, you know, that's, you can walk past like a Santa chair anytime and everyone's going, go and sit on Santa's leg and you see all these little kids crying. Tell me what that could look like or how that could be different. Yeah, and I think you're getting a really clear message from kids at that point going, I don't want to do this. I don't feel comfortable. I'm worried. I'm scared or I feel unsafe. Um, and then what adults tend to do is, is we sometimes prioritise our own needs. We want that photo. We want that family photo to share with people. We know that when kids get on Santa's lap, they might be okay. Um, but the message essentially is what it's sending to kids is it doesn't matter what you're feeling if an adult um, is telling you to do something. And whilst parents and, and other adults generally have the best interests of kids at heart and, and aren't trying to hurt them and have no in ill intent behind it, what it does is blurs boundaries for adults that don't have the best intentions. Um, and it, it creates this normalised, adults can do whatever they want to me and it doesn't matter if I say yes or no. Is that like, can, would that be the same sort of concept if like, oh, I don't want to kiss, you know, uncle or auntie such and such, like, you know, what, do, what, what are we saying to um, children around that? Yeah, Those um, it's, it's, it's pretty mixed messages. Like if you're looking at a lot of the programs coming through now, we're telling kids to listen to their body and we're telling them about body safety. Um, but what we're not doing as adults is following up and respecting when they're giving us the answer we don't want to hear. And the problem with that is, is it, it becomes normal for kids to go, okay, well, I want to hear a yes. And if I don't hear a yes, a no means just convince me. Um, so it's really, it's really important that we're respecting what children and young people are saying. Um, and it's also really important that we're modeling that as well of if kids are doing something with us that we're not liking that we talk to them and, and provide that educational moment for them going I'm telling you no and this is what that means. So what are the consequences as you see them if we um, we create a culture where we get children to override their instincts around asking you know saying no no I don't want to do this we get them to override that over a period of years what is the outcome of that? Um, I think less 
it's less likely that kids are going to speak up because it becomes normal for people to do what they want to do when they want to do it to them. Um, and as younger kids, that puts them at greater risk of being abused or getting hurt when they're younger. But it, it will bleed into their teenage and adult relationships as well and their views around how they can and can't have access to people. So what you're saying, if I'm getting it right, is that you really got to give children agency from a young age. Yeah, definitely. Um, and you were alluding to it before that there's some programs out there that can assist or um, can you talk a little bit more about um, some of those type of um, programs that might help people have some of those conversations? Yeah, absolutely. I think what we do know is that kids do well when they have access to the right information and the adults in their lives have the tools they need to support kids. So there are some really fantastic tools that adults and kids can use. Um, I know people are probably aware the Raising Children's Network is a wealth of information um, and it's a great website. True Relationships is a really fantastic website as well to help people understand around um, development. But there's also some newer books coming out um, specifically on consent. So people may have seen um, Welcome to Consent, which is a, a book by Yumi Steins and Dr. Melissa Kang that's aged, um, that's directed at 10 to 14 year old young people. But we're also now seeing some books and resources coming through for the younger years. So for that four to 10 years age bracket. So there's things like ABC of Safety and Consent by Janine Sanders. Um, the other thing that Australia has done is set up the eSafety Commissioner and there's some fantastic websites um, and resources that's, on their website. That's really topical at the moment, isn't it? Especially with so much of the country being in lockdown and so yes. many young people spending so much time online. So um, I'm just, I just also want to point out that those links to a lot of those resources are getting put in the um, chat box so that you can have a look at them. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that we did put in that chat box was some research from Act for Kids that actually says, you know, I think was it a third of parents don't actually um, think that their children know um, what anything about, about consent. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, um, and I think the younger years as well um, has been a really big gap, which is quite interesting because when we look at the research and the statistics around vulnerability of younger children, it it is higher for younger kids. So we should be having these conversations younger. Yeah. Okay. Now, Sammy, I also know that um, we've often had conversations about when are things an adult's responsibility versus um, a child's responsibility in protective behaviours. And um, this is a passion of yours and you were part of a program recently that you and some other colleagues developed, um, Safer Communities for Children. Can you tell us a little bit about that adult um, responsibility versus child responsibility in, protect, in, the, in the protective behaviours space? Yep. I think there has been um, a lot of movement and a lot of programs that have messaging around kids protecting themselves, especially recently and especially in younger years programming um, as well. And part of that is that body awareness and understanding their emotions and instilling in kids that help seeking behaviour, which is absolutely necessary um, and absolutely part 
of the puzzle that we need and to educate kids on. But what's been lacking is what goes hand in hand with that child's responsibility. And that's really where adults come in because it's an adult's role um, and responsibility to protect kids and to help them thrive. Um, and why that's so important is whilst adults need to believe children and young people, if they disclose that something's happened to them or if they're worried about something and we need to listen to what they're saying and act on that, it's actually an adult's responsibility to provide an environment um, that is safe and inclusive for children and young people so they don't get harmed in the first place. Because I think, and I don't think I'm going out on a limb here, but um, I think what we want to do is actually stop abuse and neglect from occurring in the first place and not give a reason for a child to disclose harm in the first place as well. Yeah, um, okay. And so we will also put a link to um, the Safer Communities for Children um, program in yeah. the link. Just seeing some of the questions and I'll also ask the other panels when we come back, but um, there is sometimes a reluctance to have conversations with um, children of varying ages around these type of issues because, um, what, you know, how does it, how does mandatory reporting sit with also providing a safety zone to have these conversations? What are your views on that? Yeah, and I think mandatory reporting's always been a really tricky topic. Um, but it comes down to we need to prioritise the safety and wellbeing of children and young people above everything else. And we need to strike that balance for children and young people to know that sometimes we do have obligations um, as an adult and we have to report to authorities if we believe that they've been hurt um, or at risk of being hurt. Uh, but I, one of the things that we need to do is to communicate from the, the get-go to children and young people that their wellbeing is our priority. Um, and if something happens, we will step in and protect them and report where we need to. But we're going to do absolutely everything in our power to prevent that from occurring in the first place. But we need to have these conversations openly and honestly and, and frequently with children and young people. So it's not a surprise that so they know that there are people there looking out for them at all times. Hmm. Okay, um, I'm gonna bring everyone back online if I can. Um, and one of the questions that we, we talked about are external providers coming into school and delivering consent education or parts of respectful relationship education, particularly lawyers um, or, services, the right people by doing this, but are we missing the fundamentals by talk, taking it from a solely legal perspective? I don't know that, I don't know that it is. I think it's how do we know which practitioners to get at what stage? Does anyone, I might start with you, Sammy, and then see what other thoughts are around that. Yeah, I, it is tricky. Um, I think the best thing that we can do is, is build networks and instill that community responsibility um, so that we know who's out there in the community that we can resource and lean on in different times um, and that people are familiar with and, and feel safe and have trusting relationships as well. Um, would anyone else like to add anything about external um, providers coming into schools or having conversations with young people? Holly, do you? I think it's really important that when you have external providers that you meet with them first so you know what's coming into. I've heard of a few schools who they've got someone in and they've gone, oh, 
oh my gosh like and and they can't stop it it's like a it's train wreck happening in front of them um where they may not have um read the room read the memo and um or maybe haven't given a trigger warning to started talking about things that students weren't prepared for so i think it's um meeting with those speakers first making sure that there's really clear um things that they're going to talk about know what those topics are too because when that speaker leaves you need to be there to then answer any of those questions and i mean look that's rare that that happens because most people do that but sometimes we're humans and so anyone could get up and yeah and and likewise too students could ask a guest speaker a question that no one in the room is expecting as well yeah as someone who's been a guest speaker they do ask tricky questions it's not for the faint heart <laughs> But um, I think one of the things I'm hearing is you need to be prepared um, and and it takes time. Like, it's not something that you can rush. Yeah, Tasha, sorry. Yeah. No, no, that's fine. I was just thinking, um, I feel like it's a lot to do with what's the motivation behind getting someone in? Who's the audience? What's the topic? Which part of the community is required for this actual thing that we want to talk about and then how do we support that after as well and I think it's the, the most important thing for me anyway with all of this it's like this isn't just someone comes in you know drops the mic then buggers off and goes on with their like it's conversa it's conversations all the time throughout the lifespan of a child that you might not even think it's relating to consent and it's just having open conversations around lots of things all the time I, I think we kind of get really caught up on this right we're going to bring someone in and we're going to have a set aside an hour and a half and we're going to talk about you know this is how you put a condom on a banana and this is how you you know like this is what you this is a tampon and it's what it's like it's so clinically we we approach it so clinically as opposed to it's an emotional all of this stuff is underlyingly emotionally um uh, i don't know what the word is caught up it's not just come in and have specific conversations about specific topics and I like, think kind of, yeah, sorry go on practice in this space it says that you need to scaffold and i guess what you know scaffold the learnings so that um they're reinforced and those messages are reinforced like any type of learning environment but I think what Sammy was saying, we need to start some of those things young and we need to give hope to agency. You know, and there was a lot of, um, you know, and I think when we separate out consent or we separate out grooming, then we're at risk of having those um, not flowing. So I've just seen that some people are saying, but what about um, grooming? Do we educate children around grooming? Um, I think it's got to be on that continuum. I'm just wondering yeah. what other people's um views are around that sammy would you like to start yeah i absolutely i think we need to um teach kids about grooming and we need them to recognize those early warning signs um and build those networks of trusted adults that they can go to but it's not just about teaching kids grooming and and then thinking that they'll be okay or, or we'll be reactive and wait for them to disclose it's actually about then adults taking that step to look at the environment have they got a safe inclusive child-friendly focused environment in place have we taken the steps to safeguard children and young people to prevent grooming from occurring in the first place 
Yeah, Holly, I completely agree with you, Sammy. Completely agree because there's no point in saying, okay, this is what grooming looks like and this is what, you know, these are the things that it's unless you've got all of those protective measures in place at the school in order to keep in your eye on things, mm -hmm. then you'll constantly, constantly be in a reactive position. So you have to be proactive with students and being willing to talk about all of these things. I mean, I'm conscious of the fact too that there are teachers and I'm, I've been uh, meeting with some beginning teachers who are at our school who are feel like they feel like they have knowledge of curriculum, no knowledge of pastoral care. And they say that they don't feel like they've covered that enough. Not saying that they've got no knowledge, I shouldn't say that. I mean, as in limited knowledge in practicing that at schools. And I think therefore, if we're educating parents, we're educating students, we also have to educate teachers so that they also have um, some tools because there are some teachers who um, students go and tell something to them and then they go, what do I do with that? And they're not sure what to do with it. So yeah, yeah. I think that's got to be part of it as well. And that, I think that is, it's, it can't be a standalone. You can't run a program and go, all right, kids are safe <laughs> now. Um, this is about changing cultures of organisations and communities and families as well around to prioritising children and young people. And it's about how then, if you're running a program in a school or a childcare um, or wherever you work or, or volunteer with kids, how are we communicating the messages out to parents and adults in the community as well so they can be consistent with their messaging and strategies to help children and young people? And how are we actually communicating what children and young people want and need to feel and to be safe. So adults are doing the right thing when they're needed. Yeah. And how are we supporting the teachers once they've had the conversations as well? Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. what comes up for them from that? I'm uh, the University of Canberra are next year piloting using Talk Revolution with their pre-service teachers. So exactly that they're getting the education before they even step foot into a classroom because yeah. we did a, um, a study with them about how confident they felt about talking about all these topics and like you don't put your hand up to be a, a life coach you're putting your hand up to be a teacher to talk about you know and and then depending on what school you fall into which area is picking it up whether it's pdhp whether it's pastoral care whether it's a school nurse like it could you don't know where it's going to fall and they are really sensitive um it's a big responsibility so teachers if if it's falling onto a lap of a teacher 100 percent, they need as much support around them as possible so that they feel confident to be able to deliver it but also you know what happens after and they need to have the the buy-in of the parents and understand like the parents need to understand that you've got to work together and and it's all happening not to kind of sensationalize and we're all going to just talk about sex it's like it's building resilience it's empowering young people it's helping young people to be able to make better decisions to be able to support their own peers to be able to call each other out on um actions and stuff that they might see like it's not just oh we're sensationalizing and we're going to just talk about rape culture and we're just going to talk about coercion and we're just going to talk about sex 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 like there's so it's so layered there's so many more layers to it and i think when we all understand that it's a conversation about resilience and just being creating decent humans i think we can kind of like take the fear away around oh my god i'm going to say the wrong thing or 
Um, anyway, I should get off my soapbox. Sorry. Uh, I think I think it's 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 really um, I think what you're highlighting is it's not a one size fits all, and it actually takes a lot of energy to have these conversations and figure out and localize and adapt them for the needs of the individual cohort of young people. And we've had lots of um, people in the questions talking about, do we need to adapt these and localise them for Aboriginal Torres Strait Island or different um, culturally linguistically diverse groups? And yes, we do, because yeah. I, that's one of the problems we see with respectful relationship education. It does need to be localised. So, um, and I think, Sammy, when you were talking about the safer communities for children, that's exactly what you did. Um, with that project um, because there was a gap. Is that right? Yeah, and it's still a program that we write, you know, um, my wonderful colleague in Northern Territory, Marin and I, uh, had the absolute privilege to help develop this um, with consultation and input from many communities um, and organisations across the NT because it was funded in NT. Um, but even the program as it stands, the idea is that it is, it's still not a one size fits all. We've got the basic concepts that are there, um, but we want communities to take the program to do the planning um, and the implementation to make sure that it fits the needs of the kids that they're delivering it to and the communities and the adults there as well. Yeah. Um, Holly or Tasha, did you want to add anything? Yeah, look, I was just thinking too of um, we have a uh, we have students who uh, English is their second language and that is another um, group of students who I'm conscious of either a don't always understand. So we need to make sure that we're also allowing them to understand all of the little intricacies that we are talking about because and also if they have come from and we have international students too who've come who have never had that experience. And that kind of alludes to the question earlier um, that you asked me about whether we have culturally diverse students. We do, um, but the parents are very grateful for the most part for us teaching it rather than them having to, because they know that's why they come to Australia is because they want that education that's really holistic. Um, it's so important. There's just, every student needs to be, um, to have that voice and every student needs to be able to say too that they don't like what's happening. I think I was thinking while I was sitting here before um, my, my son's at home today and he's 16 and look he's cranky most of the time at the moment and so I have to try really hard not to take offence and it's the same at school sometimes you have students who say I don't like the way that this is being taught and I don't like the fact that this hasn't been taught or this is being taught this way and it's not taking offence to it. It's realising they're frustrated they're also, you know, Freud would say that it is taking control over their minds and everything at the moment and going, okay, I'm just going to separate that emotion for a moment, the anger that you feel like this is, and I'm going to separate this and I'm going to go, okay, let's look at the core. You feel like you've been dismissed or you feel like we've missed that. And that's, that's the bit that we've got to take note of and go, oh, okay, yep, the lesson learned, let's work on it together. Mm -hmm. I think as so well, sorry, put in that, oh, yeah. But dis disability as well, kids with disabilities too, you know, like all, especially in the area of, you know, periods or there's, it's so multi-layered and we absolutely do need to take into consideration all of the things and not make a, an assumption that there's a blanket um, approach on one size fits all because it doesn't. Yeah, absolutely.
I don't know if you can see the questions, Natasha, but someone just said something about like, how do we do that and how do we approach that um, when we've got high levels of young people with disabilities as well? Because that's a really vulnerable, um, that's a vulnerable cohort of young people as well. Look, I'm just aware of the time, but I just um, maybe I'll go around each of our um, panelists and just, can you give us some of your take homes about how we, um, what we can do, what you'd like to see happen in this space and how we can really give young people and children agency in this space so that everyone can have access to respectful relationship education. Sammy, I'll start with you just because you're on the top of my screen. I'm just going around in a circle. me under the bus. Um, <laughs> there's so much. Um, I think the biggest thing is, is that we need to prioritise the well-being of, of children and young people. We need to put their well-being and their needs ahead of anything else. If it's brand, reputation, profits, um, and if we're truly prioritising their well-being, this is how we're going to continue having these conversations and making sure that their needs are met and that they they're provided with the opportunities to work out what is a respectful relationship for them and what isn't and where can they get help if that if they need it. Hmm. See that was good summary. Thank you. <laughs> Tasha, you're next on my little clock there. What, what was the question? <sighs> well I just know like how do how what are some take homes for the audience about how we give young people real agency, what you would like to see happen in this space and I know that you also wanted to talk about talk revolution and um, how they can get it how we can get in contact with you or utilize your program um I think by looking um you know second seconding what Sammy says but by taking the hu the human like regardless of gender regardless of like let's take the human the when the baby comes out it's not like full of racial cultural bias and all the rest of it so I, I, by looking at each individual oh i think tasha's freezing you just agreeing with me you were freezing on my screen i wasn't sure if you Where were did freezing. You get to? um I don't. What did you hear me say? I was going about babies coming out perfectly and not yep, being. Yeah, the babies being born. <laughs> I heard that. The babies. We're going to start right back there. I'm going to take you right back. I'll give you a lesson on how babies are born. I'm not going to do that. I just think we need to look at the human as a whole. Forget about gender. Um, look at resilience. Have conversations from an early age that are lots of them. Uh, I think adults need to get way more comfortable with having these conversations and they need to take responsibility for doing that, whatever that means. Go and educate yourself, go and see what you're uncomfortable about. I think being really aware, um, not shaming our kids, uh, building on what you were saying, Sammy, around the, you know, like going and hugging and sweaty Uncle Ted or whatever, and then not shaming them when they don't want to because then on top of that, we're telling them to not listen to their guts, but then we're shaming them. So we're adding to the problem. Um, listening to listening to kids, getting the whole community involved, like getting over ourselves, getting out of our own way of what we think is right and wrong. Um, and then world peace and happiness will be for all. <laughs> there you go, yeah. easy, simple. We achieved so much. 
touching this webinar. That's great. Um, so, Tasha, I think you also wanted to give um, Talk Revolution a plug. So, we did you well, want to do that? More, more just wanting to say that um, I'm happy to give anybody who is listening, who has, you know, happened to have their ears bled for the last hour listening to all of us, that um, they can have 20% off a program if they email me and just say that they've um, listened, watched, whatever, uh, the webinar. That was all my little, as a, as a thank you. I'd love to give it away for free, obviously, because, you know, ultimately that's what we want to be able to be doing is not having to, people not having to pay for this stuff. Um, and we should all have free access to all of this everywhere. But um, one day that will be a, be a thing as well. And um, that'll teach anyone who didn't stay to the end of the webinar. Oh, yes, it will. There you go. That'll um, learn you. Holly, take away from you to sum up. Oh, look, so much. Um, I think that the mixed messages part is something that I'm really conscious of. And when Sammy mentioned that that is, <laughs> well, I think we're always giving mixed messages to young people. So that's one thing is making sure that we are being clear, consistent and have an open ear. And I think that's probably my main thing is communication. It's communication, communication. It's all the time. That's how we we build respectful relationships with anyone is by having communication and, and saying, what are your thoughts? What do you think? And that's for everybody. That's parents, that's students, that's staff, that's, you know, your neighbour, that's anyone. Communication. Um, so, yeah, thank you for your, thank you to the fabulous speakers for sharing your um, wisdoms and insights today. Um, I'm going to have to wrap it up now, but I'd also like to acknowledge and thank victim survivors such as Chanel Contos, Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame, who have been advocating so strongly for conversations about RRE because I think they have provided a platform for these type of conversations to be heard in Australia, unlike we've seen before. Um, so I want to close with a call to action, so to speak, have these conversations, exactly what Holly was just saying, communication matters, conversation matters, make sure you support families, communities and schools to have these really important conversations. And I also want to shout out to the largest prevention workforce in Australia, the Love Bites community, Thank you for your tireless work in this really, really important space. So that's all we have time for today, um, but it's not the end of the conversation. So please keep it alive um, and hopefully you'll be able to take some of what we've spoken about today back to using your work or home life. And thank you again to our wonderful um, panellists. Thanks for your time.